For those who like the minutiae of church life, Edward J. Burns, who wrote that hymn, was the vicar of the other Christ Church, Fullwood in Preston. There you are. I, I know these abstruse things. That's important. There is another Christ Church, Fullwood, not worth mentioning, but it's there across the Pennines. After uh, Kate's limerick, you may wonder why bother preaching, but I'm going to, whether you like it or not, and we're going to have the limerick filled out. The uh, other night I was wandering through the lounge and my wife was watching University Challenge, which I don't normally watch, but I spotted and saw it was the University of Sheffield, and so I stood by and supported and they did very well. They were impressive and they won massively. I ought to have been worried because they defeated the University of Central Lancashire, which I, as an exiled Lancastrian, should be sad about. But never mind, they did marvellously well, the University of Sheffield. But I did notice that in the process they were asked a very simple question about the Lord's Prayer, and they hadn't a clue. And I muttered to my wife about the biblical illiteracy of students of our day. And quite right, I was. Incidentally, the folk at Lancashire didn't know it either, so equally illiterate. And... Uh, it reminded me that the phrase that we're looking at this morning, if you turn back to page 889 for that fifth chapter of Daniel, because I've got Daniel, Daniel 4 and 5 to deal with today, the phrase that comes, the writing on the wall, is a phrase most of us know. I hope most of us know that comes from Scripture, but I guess most don't. We use it in all sorts of ways. For example, uh, should by some awful mischance Sheffield Wednesday lose this afternoon and go to the bottom of the Champions League, whatever it's called. Uh, there will be those who say the writing's on the wall. They're on their way down to join Leeds United down in the one below. You know, that's what they'll be saying. And you'll know what they mean. The writing's on the wall. Cynicism. Well, the writing on the wall in Scripture was a much more serious event. The writing on the wall in Scripture was, of course, to do with the solemn judgment of God on a man who turned his back against the truth and for whom Daniel had nothing more to say. I find Daniel 5 tremendously challenging. I've been given two chapters because uh, we've got to get to Daniel 6 next week for the family service. And family service and, and lion's dens go well together. Every, if I, every time I took a family service, Paul, it was going into the lion's den. Uh, well, you'll have a good time next week. So I've got to do two chapters to get to chapter 6 for next week. But it's helpful in that in chapter 5, you may have noticed in verses uh, 18 to 21, the chapter we read, uh, Daniel goes back and refers back to chapter 4, the dream of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, of a tree that reached to heaven, and it was interpreted. And finally, there was a word of judgment that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, unless he repented, would go and have a period when he would be dis deranged and live like the animal world. And uh, unless he repented, that would be the judgment that would come. I have to confess... Uh, during the course of the night, there was a rave-up in the Mayfield Valley. I hope you weren't there. If you were in the Mayfield Valley rave-up last night, God loves you. I didn't in the middle of the night. Not the slightest bit. I hope you repent. Divine judgment was very much on my mind as I tried to get some sleep this night. The, well, never mind. You have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Don't do it again, will you, please? It went on and on. But in chapter 5... Uh, Daniel reminds us of chapter 4, and so we look at these two chapters together, and it's very int intriguing uh, how different Daniel is with Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Very interesting. And I hope I can weave these two chapters together helpfully. 
Incidentally, by the way, these two chapters are very good historical stuff. For any who think, well, these are just stories, it didn't really happen, they're nice myths, they tell us nice truths, fiery furnaces and lion's dens. Do you really believe all this? Yes, I do. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar fits beautifully the kind of man we know he was. He built the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was a very majestic city. And if you glance back to chapter 4, verse 30, when Nebuchadnezzar is at the height of his pomp, he's so proud, is not this the great Babylon I have built? And it was. It was an amazing sight. So there's a very real sense of history there. And if you like the encouraging little accuracy, in chapter 5, when Daniel is given the position of the third highest ruler in the kingdom, which he turns down very brusquely, that's very accurate. Not Why not the second highest ruler in the kingdom? It just so happened that, in fact, Belshazzar was not the king. He was the viceroy because the king was a gentleman by the name of Nabonidus, about who by nothing else but his name, and uh, Belshazzar was ruling this stead. So he, if Daniel was promoted, he could be only the third highest ruler. And the bit about the Queen Mother in verse 10 of chapter 5 is all true to character. This uh, Queen Mother was the power behind the throne. The history is full of Queen Mothers who had powers behind the throne, and this was one of them. And it's intriguing historical accuracy. But let's see the difference. Nebuchadnezzar died in 562, which I'm sure excites you. And chapter 5 was a couple of decades later. Nebuchadnezzar had gone. But Daniel was around, and he was brought in, even out of retirement, to say something. Now, when he spoke to Nebuchadnezzar about his dream in chapter 4, which was a dream of judgment, will you notice in verse 19, if you're flicking around these pages, chapter 4, 19, Daniel was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. He didn't like what he saw. He knew what he had to say. So the king said, it's rather lovely this, the king said, uh, Belteshazzar, that's Daniel's other name, don't let the dream alarm you. The king was rather worried for his, uh, the man who's going to interpret. Because he, was, he, he had a kind of fondness for Nebuchadnezzar. He believed there was something genuine in Nebuchadnezzar. And that's why in verse 27 of chapter 4, he exhorts Nebuchadnezzar to repent, to renounce what's wrong and turn back to God. God may have mercy. What about Belshazzar? To Belshazzar, he has nothing to say. You, did you notice the way he said it in chapter 5, verse 17? You can keep the gifts for yourself. He has no intention of accepting anything from the hand of this man. And eventually he has nothing to say to him except, this night is the end. No word. Does that seem strange to you? May I remind you that there was another man in the New Testament, not unlike Belshazzar, a king who turned his back on the truth, a man called Herod. And in Luke chapter 23 and verse 9, when Jesus' events is brought in front of Herod, Herod was delighted. And it says in Luke 23, 9, that Herod had longed to see Jesus. He plied him with many questions. He wanted to hear from Jesus and Jesus said nothing. Not a word. Now, wait a minute. Would you say to Jesus, that wasn't a very Christian thing to do, Jesus? Could you accuse Jesus of doing a non-Christian thing? Surely he ought to have tried to bring Herod back. Surely he ought to have answered his question, but Jesus said nothing. Herod, you see, had turned his back on the truth. 
He'd slaughtered John, John the Baptist against all his conscience. He was just playing games. And Jesus doesn't play games. And I want to say there's something terribly solemn as I prepared this sermon. There is a moment when Jesus has nothing to say to us. It is a reminder that both chapters 4 and 5 are a reminder of the truth that pride comes before a fall. Uh, Proverbs 16, verse 18. And even with Nebuchadnezzar, where Daniel did care and he did come back, there was repentance. Even with Nebuchadnezzar, the danger was that he was growing arrogant. If you see in chapter 4 uh, and verse 11, the vision that he had of a great tree, which was Babylon. And what happened to the tree? The tree grew large and strong and its top touched the sky. There's one other place in the Bible where somebody built something that touched the sky. Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. And they built their makeshift tower until, as it were, it reached the very sky. Please don't miss these things. You remember the... Nazi salute, those of us old enough. Our athletes refusing to give it in 1938-9 when they went to Berlin. The, the, the Nazi salute is thrusting defiance into the face of God. And it bothers me when I see people doing this to God. Why is it incidentally, when footballers score, score a goal, why do they look so miserable to everybody? Why do they, like, they hate everybody? Their fists go up in the air. I would have thought they'd have been happy. But apparently not. But you see, we live in a world where we are doing this to God. We'll come back to that more often. And these two chapters tell us two solemn truths. And as I prayed about this uh, particular sermon, Mark will tell you that I've been so concerned about this sermon, so she's been praying more than usual for me. It, it struck me that while it is something for all of us here, and it must be that, it may be something for us to be awakened to the needs and the dangers of the society in which we live. Not all of this will apply to you and to me. We bring this little child into baptism and we long for her to grow up as a Christian. But she's growing up in a world where there's a very different attitude, where anti-God and anti-Christ is very much at the heart of our society increasingly. So at the end of my sermon, I hope at least it will send us out wakened up more prayerful, because the two chapters have two simple words. Chapter 4, too great. Chapter 5, too late. Chapter 4, too great. That was uh, where Nebuchadnezzar got. Two sim simple thoughts about him. First of all, the rise and fall of human pride. If you've been following the story of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel, he keeps on having ups and downs. He keeps on responding and then forgetting Chapter 2, he'd had a vision and he'd been answered and he'd acknowledged God and then he'd forgotten. Last week you saw Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and he praised the God who was there who met them in the fiery furnace and he forgot. And eventually this happened to him, this terrible chapter 4 that you may read at your leisure, when eventually Nebuchadnezzar has a period when he's like an animal, his mind has gone. And uh, when he's brought back, he starts chapter 4 with a testimony, a great testimony of Nebuchadnezzar, where he testifies in verse 3, how great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders, his kingdom is an eternal kingdom, his dominion endures from generation to generation. Fine, Nebuchadnezzar. Would you live by it all the time? 
I may just speak to some this morning who are a bit like that. We are kind of spiritual dilettantes. Every now and again we like to respond. Every now and again something happens in the world or in our lives and we say, I must worship God. Yes, God. But how easily we forget. And what was it that made Nebuchadnezzar forget? Pride and arrogance. Just notice in the story in chapter 4, and it's very telling. In chapter 4, he has his dream, and in verse 6, he brings all the wise men to interpret the dreams, and you say to yourself, hey, wait a minute, why didn't you bring Daniel first? After all, they'd always failed you in the past, and Daniel had succeeded. Why not call Daniel first? Verse 8, finally Daniel came into my presence. Oh, I know, and I think you know, When you don't want somebody to tell you what you don't want to hear, you don't go to speak to them. You find the kind of counsellors who tell you exactly what you want to hear. And they're always around. Paul warns in the New Testament about those who have itching ears and will get somebody to tell you exactly what you want them to hear, what you want to hear. You avoid the one who tells you the truth. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar knew that when Daniel spoke, it could well be a word of judgment. So he kept Daniel till the end. Please be careful. When we're on some course of action, please make sure you find out what God wants to say through a godly person you trust, not through the people who will tell you just what makes you feel nice and comfortable. Well, the whole message to to, to, to Nebuchadnezzar was that, yes, his, his kingdom was a great kingdom, and it was proud, he was proud, and rightly proud, but he was in danger. And do you see how, even though Daniel loved Nebuchadnezzar, no, no, because Daniel loved Nebuchadnezzar, he told him the truth. He didn't dilute it. You see, he's very clear and straight in verse 22, you, O king, are the one. Verse 22, you, O king, are that tree. Some of you know the man, uh, I will not mention the name, but he always tell you, he came to Christ, came back to Christ, because he, he came to church here, I think for the first time, and I preached a sermon, I was preaching Nathan's word to David, where David had sinned against Bathsheba. And I said to him, uh, Nathan said to to, 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 uh, to David, you are the man. And this gentleman in my congregation insisted every time I said that, you are the man, I pointed at him. He was quite convinced every time I said, you are the man, I was pointing his direction. So much so I got a phone call next morning saying, Vicar, I need to come round and get converted. It's the only time I've ever had anybody ring up and say, can I come round to get converted? But he did, those were his words. And he was. And he asked me when I took his funeral to say those words, and I did. Because not, be careful, <laughs> you are the man, no. But you see how honest Daniel was? You, O king, are that tree. And you must repent, verse 25, because you must acknowledge the sovereignty of the Most High God. That's what it's all about. You think you are God. You think you're in charge of your life. You think you can be benevolent to other people with with your majesty, but you are a tree and you're in danger of taking the place of God. And he warns him in verse 27 to renounce what's wrong and turn to God. The rise and fall of human pride. Nebuchadnezzar had grown great and great. It's said about one man in the Old Testament called Uzziah. 
who we know he died when Isaiah had the call. King Uzziah, it's about King Uzziah, that he was mightily helped till he became strong. And when he became powerful, he didn't need God anymore. Indeed, he played God himself. I've often thought, we, we use in our prayer notes, we often pray for people when they're in, at the bottom, in the depths, when things are going wrong in their lives. Quite right. I wish I could give a list of names of people who are in danger of forgetting God because everything's going well. Because they're up there. How easy to forget God when you're proud. The rise and fall of human pride. And finally, uh, the second thing about this too great, too great, the final word with God. Verse 28, a simple statement, all this happened, chapter 4, verse 28, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. But notice when? Twelve months later. Oh, God is gracious. He'd had the dream, and the dream had been interpreted, and it had been a word of judgment that would come on him, but for twelve months he was left. And then twelve months later comes verse 30. As he walked on the roof of his royal palace, his arrogance came to a climax. My mighty power and the glory of my majesty. God doesn't live with that. The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what's decreed. And Nebuchadnezzar went into his years of exile when his mind went and he had to learn humility. I was reminded of one other New Testament passage so much like this. The story of the rich farmer in Luke chapter 12 verses 19 and 20 where the rich farmer was saying I've done so well, my barns are full and I'm doing marvellously. I can sit back and say eat, drink and be merry. All is well for my retirement. And the next verse says that very night your soul is required of you. It's the thing that keeps running that very night. Here, verse 31, the words were still on his lips. We'll find in chapter 5, verse 30, that very night. The one thing we are not in control of is our time. Not really. We like to think we are. And things can happen suddenly. Can happen that very night. Can happen this very morning. And the rich farmer who was rich in this world's goods suddenly found himself in a world where he had no currency. He had nothing for eternity. And the challenge is that we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. I'm afraid I got rather lost in singing the chorus, A Very Big God. I was on the wrong verse. I was still halfway through when you finished. But anyway, I was happy to sing that God is a very big God. And I'm sure Daniel would have said the same. But a very big God, the great God, had to be acknowledged eventually by Nebuchadnezzar. Too great, but he did eventually repent. He did come back and he did testify. But he had to be humble. James chapter 4 verse 10, a great New Testament verse. Humble yourselves, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he may exalt you. And if I don't humble myself, God has an awful knack of doing it for me. Too great. But secondly, too late. That's chapter 5. Two truths. First of all, truths sort you out. The story of Belshazzar is an awful story. 
it's got nothing to do, has it, with us? It's not our world. You get the story. He knew, he knew all about what his father... Incidentally, Nebuchadnezzar was not his father directly. It really means his ancestor, possibly his grandfather. But he knew the whole story, and he knew what had happened. That's what uh, that Daniel reminds him, verse 22. You, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Oh, people sometimes ask me, what about those who have never heard the gospel? And I'm quite prepared to debate it with you, but I'm much more concerned about those who have heard the gospel, who do know all about this, but who've done nothing about it. Truth sorts you out. And the whole story is, is, is of a man who was deliberately sacrilegious. He was deliberately using the goblets from the temple of God in Jerusalem to defy God. He didn't need this most high God. He would in his drunken orgy condemn and laugh at and taunt. It was only last year a well-known television presenter used four-letter words about Jesus. And when I see a man who could call Jesus a four-letter word Jesus, I just can't watch him and all the other things he's supposed to be doing. You don't mock God, ultimately. And the story of history is that ultimately, like Nebuchadnezzar, unless there's repentance, like Belshazzar, that ultimately pride does come before a fall. Saddam Hussein, whatever your views on the Iraq war, see his, 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 uh, his great monument toppling. Those whose memory goes back a bit, there was a man called Nkrumah, a dictator in Ghana, and he had a statue of himself built. They love having statues built, these tyrants. And around the base were the words, Seek ye first the political kingdom, and all these things will be added unto you. A bit of scripture that he'd misused for himself. And I saw the picture of it lying flat down on the ground. And I remember reading, when I was a student of history, reading a book on Christianity and history by Professor Butterfield at Cambridge, which points out that in a great sweep of history, eventually pride does come before a fall. And so here was Belshazzar, king, defying God. And then you see that in verse 6. It's almost humorous, verse 6, isn't it? His face turned pale when he saw the writing on the wall and he was, so <clears throat> he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. That's what happened when I first preached the Keswick Convention. My knees knocked together and my legs gave way. But this is rather more fearsome thought. You've got this, suddenly this mighty king was here in the writing on the wall. Can I just say one thing? It was a drunken orgy. That's what was going on. It was like John the Baptist's death. Why was John the Baptist murdered? Because Herod gave a foolish vow when they were all drunk. And there was a voluptuous girl dancing. You don't make wise decisions then. You could have anything you like, the half of your kingdom, the head of John the Baptist. And yet, Christians still laugh at drunkenness. I hear Christians telling jokes about drunk people. There's nothing funny about drunkenness. Pathetic, pitiable, not funny. And I'm rather weary about the fact that somehow we're living in such a wonderful age now that you mustn't ever say things about the dangers of alcohol. And yet our nation's beginning to waken up to it. And that's part of what was happening here. And the truth was the important thing. 
What Belshazzar had to learn was that the truth will eventually sort you out. And he knew all this. He knew what had happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And yet he went on living as he did. In the book of, in the New Testament, in 2 Thessalonians, when it comes to the day of judgment, 2 Thessalonians 1, who are those who are rejected who go into eternal destruction? That's what it says. Those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. And do not know God means really those who have refused the knowledge of God. That's the great theme. That's the danger. And it just may be for some of us here. Ultimately, truth sorts us out. If we reject the truth, then there's no other way, is there? Truth sorts you out and finally sin finds you out. I don't know why, but as a lad, the, the verse I learned first of all from Scripture was, be sure your sin will find you out. Now, why my Sunday school teacher taught me that first before any other, I do not know, but it may have been some sinister reason. But I had a job to find out where it came from. Do you know where be sure your sin will find you out comes from? It comes in Numbers 32, 23. I checked it out before I got my sermon. Numbers 32, 23. And a rather odd context. It's the context of the two and a half tribes who come in with the other nine and a half when they're possessing the promised land and they were told to fight and then they could go back to their own land the other side of the Jordan. And if you don't fight properly, be sure your sin will find you out, says Moses. Well now, in this situation, sin found him out. For Belshazzar, there was no word of hope, only judgment. Oh, that we had some leaders in the Christian community with the courage of Daniel. Offered a, a sop. Offered a position. Tone it down, Daniel. Daniel will speak the truth. And the truth is that that's it, you know. Many, many, tekel you fast. And I was brought up as a lad with those words. You're weighed in the balance and found wanting. And that very night... Note that phrase, that very night, it happened. There was a moment when there was no more time. That's why the Bible always insists now is the day of salvation. You are not in charge of your future any more than I am. I can remember Billy Graham at his, at his height. Dear Billy Graham, what a great blessing he's been to the church. There was an article, a, a, a letter in the church in a newspaper that did my soul good. The CEN normally makes me feel miserable. But that, this time, this, this, this letter did me good. Pointing out, Billy Graham and John Stott, the two great men of this last generation. Uh, great men, both still alive, but both in their late 80s. Uh, and how much we owe to Billy Graham. And I can remember Billy Graham at his best shouting out Proverbs 29 verse 1 when he was coming to the appeal <clears throat> and the challenging people to respond now in Proverbs 29 verse 1 a man who remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy boy that's hot stuff isn't it and there were those who thought come on tone it down isn't that why many people responded you see you cannot sort of keep on listening and then say well one day there was no more day for Belshazzar. No more day. You see, the child, what had he done wrong? What had he done wrong? He hadn't humbled himself, verse 22. In verse 23, he deliberately defied God. He praised idols. He turned his back on God. He didn't honor God. He rejected him completely. That very night, 
his soul was desired. We are living in a world which is much more common. In a moment, I want to finish with the, the positive note of hope. Because it's so easy, isn't it, to be weighed down with all these words, but it's important to remember them. It troubles me that many evangelical believing Christians have theoretically taken hell out of their system. Or they will, they will sorry, practically taken hell out of their system. Theoretically, they will say they believe in it. But the urgency... The sense of need, the concern of our, in, that in our kingdom we are seeing in our land an anti-God and an anti-Jesus Christ and we need to stand up and be counted to let people know that that way lies disaster for the nation and disaster for the individual. But just please, as I finish, glance over to chapter 7, will you? We're finishing at chapter 6. But in chapter 7 and verse 13, there's another vision. The vision that brings hope, not to Belshazzar, there was no word for him, but a word that brings hope to us. In the midst of all this about uh, a dominion which never passes away, listen to this. In my vision at night, Daniel 7.13, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. Stop. Do you remember those words? Do you remember where they were quoted in the New Testament? Jesus on trial for his life. Are you the Christ? I am. And you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days. He was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Don't you see the contrast? Nebuchadnezzar's great kingdom has gone. To the dust, you can dig and find traces of it, gone. Belshazzar, in his drunken orgy, went quickly. Jesus will come, and his kingdom will never be destroyed. In chapter 2, it talked about a little stone out of the mountain that would one day destroy the mountain. Isn't that wise? We baptized Eleanor this morning in a Christian family. She's going to go up in a world where she'll have to make up her mind which way she goes, and we've anticipated in faith she will follow Christ's way, of course. But there are two kingdoms, two different kingdoms. You see, we all need a king. Funnily enough, I was flicking through the teletext uh, late last night, all this no noise coming from the, from the valley. I was flicking through the teletext quietly so as not to disturb other people in my flat. I don't know why I bothered with all that noise coming from across the map. But I was flicking through my teletext and I was looking for who was going to play for Sheffield Wednesday this afternoon. I don't go and watch Sunday for sport, but I do have to sort of know what's happening. So I was just flicking through and I saw the headlines uh, The New King Elvis Crown. I thought, I thought he died a long time ago. Anyway, apparently the look-alike King Elvis has just been crowned. What a piece of nonsense. But I suppose if you, if you like that kind of thing, God bless you. But uh, Elvis is dead, long since dead, buried, and he is no king. And the look-alike, if you're foolish enough to support him, that's fine. But you see, we, we need a king. We need a king. And the lovely thing is that into this world where kingdoms come and kingdoms go, came the one whose dominion would never end. And that's why I chose, we're going to sing it in a moment, our closing hymn, which is a hymn 
The hymn full of Emmanuel who came from the squalor of a borrowed stave. One of Stuart Townend's lovely modern hymns. The one who went to the cross. He went through all the agony. He was a wrong sort of king. He was a, an unusual king. The kind of king Belshazzar would have scorned. Let me read the last verse. Now he's standing in the place of honor. Crowned with glory on the highest throne, interceding for his own beloved, till his father calls to bring them home. Then the skies will part as the trumpet sounds. And here's the honesty of Stuart Townend. I wish they were all like him. Hope of heaven or the fear of hell. Hope of heaven or the fear of hell. No, that last day isn't going to be joy for everybody. And we need to remember both. But the pride will run to her lover's arms, giving glory to Emmanuel. Most of us here belong to that kingdom which will never pass away. Please pray for the kingdom in which we live, which will pass away. Including so many people who are in danger of passing away without any hope. God give us grace to respond while there's time. So that we might reach others before for them it's too late. I'll pray, then we'll sing.